History Lecture 113, Rabbi Blyweiss. Um, so the, within a blink of the eye, as Kaddish Baruch works sometimes in the world, the uh, center of the Jewish world of Europe is um, wiped out, diminished drastically. The Jews who remain are refugees. And um, even that we perceive this in history as a move from Europe to Palestine, it's not quite as simplistic as that. Jews are refugees. Many of them will opt to go if they can get visas to the Americas, North and South. They'll go to Australia. They'll go to uh, South Africa. They'll go anywhere um, where they can be let in. Um, the immediate period after the Shoah is one of immense um, uh, instability around the world, and certainly for the Jews, many many of the refugees are in DP camps, displaced persons camps. Are they as bad as the? They're not concentration camps. It's an important distinction to make. You can visit, when you go uh, near to Israel, you can visit, for example, up on the coast, south of Haifa, is a place called Atlit that's turned into a museum. Are you familiar? You've been there? No, but I've heard of it. Yeah. So in Atlit, you can go and see the, the camp that the British made to um, contain the Jews who were here. It's shocking when you consider people having been liberated from refugee camps only to find themselves in such camps in Palestine, no less. That was the policy of the Brits ever since the white paper that we saw. Um, trying to pull ourselves out of the reality and talk about the shift from, uh, from, from, from disaster to, to, uh, to trying to pick ourselves back up again, um, I remind us, I bring in the Pasuk and Breshis, Pasuk tells us, Vayomer im yavo esavela machane ha echas, vihikahu, vaya ha machane ha nisha lefleta. So when Esav, Yaakov, in arranging himself and planning the confrontation when he returns to Eretz Israel and, and, and uh, confronts his brother Esav, who has murderous designs against him, he divides his camp. And he says, one of the camps, if he should smite it, well, the other camp will be the remainder will be a um, will be a refuge, will be a safe haven that will have gotten gotten away. We don't to put all of our eggs in one in one basket in one one place. It seems from a kind of a global historical perspective that that was what Hashem does. He takes his approach with his deliverance of Am Yisrael after the Shoah. The Jews in Palestine at the time could be seen Hanishar Lefleta, those who were remaining the refuge those who are going to somehow pick up the pieces and rebuild. The, um, he also creates the cure before the plague. He establishes some kind of presence, a Jewish presence in Eretz Yisrael before there was this terrible, uh, this, this uh, cataclysm of the Shoah that would decimate uh, European Jewry, but there's now an infrastructure in place. It's not perfect. It's flawed as we've been talking about it. We're going to continue talking about its various flaws, both spiritually, physically, uh, geopolitically, but it's here. It's something. It's at least a, at least it's a, it's, it's a place that the Jews can go to. We're going to say, Elon? No, that, uh, all in Yom, that for the Beit HaMikdash, he was able to send yeah, God had the Yavna would be able to... Right. Yavna was there for us for sure. And we see that throughout history. Reish Lakish teaches that explicitly in the Gemara, that when, when, it, when it, Kaddish Baruch Hu's chesed is such, he never punishes us. The punishment is always meant to really as a way of bringing us back to him uh, to try to help us out. And indeed, he always provides the cure before the, uh, the, before the, plague, before the plague goes out. Um, you know, that a nation would be exiled and then dispersed among the continents. And we know that um, really there is no such national consciousness anywhere else in the world before modern times. I mentioned this in one of our last classes that uh, when people moved, they were, they were simply nomadic and they started to identify with whatever their new country was. They didn't necessarily retain connections to the old world, certainly not into the second, third generation. They already assimilated to the new, the new culture and the Jews were unique in this level. But that the Jews could be exiled and then dispersed and then would have survived the horrors that we've reimagined re and endured for the last 2,000 years as we've uh, relived all of Jewish history, and then that we would come back to this land, this holy land, is a miracle. Uh, in this context, we think about as, uh, something that we mentioned at the very, very beginning of this class, Rav Yaakov Emden's comments, <laughs> And it takes on a new poignance. I'll, I'll requote it in full. He says, When I consider the great wonders 
of the, uh, and he means what he's referring to is the continued existence of Am Yisrael. He says, these wonders emerge with greater significance than all the miracles that HaKadosh Baruch performed for our ancestors in Egypt, in the desert, when they entered Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Yaakov then he concludes, he says, with the longer this exile extends, the miracle of our existence becomes more obvious. It's to make known that Hashem is master of the entire world and throughout time. And it takes that spiritual uh, ability to look at the world and see a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and see, see how everything is being played out, pull ourselves out of our mundane um, physical existence, material, material cons- uh, immersed existence, and they will see what's going on, that we're alive in such thrilling times. And to try to make sense of what, what that is, first what we have to, we have to recognize is... Uh, is that it all, this all comes from a Baruch Now, the Jews in Palestine are struggling. There, um, they, we, we mentioned already that there were attacks. We talked about the stories. There were a couple of the possibilities that the Nazis would have come and conquered Palestine. They certainly had um, made an alliance with the Arabs, the Grand Mufti, who would more than welcome their presence and facilitate the, uh, the imprisonment of the Jewish population of Palestine. We know that they survived that. We also know that the British Empire is enduring all kinds of its own problems. The empire that's around the world is starting to implode in India and Pakistan, all over the place. The British are having problems. Um, British Mandate Palestine is one extra headache and increasingly becomes obvious that they had gotten themselves in far over their heads. They, and they, they, the, that the, in, the end was imminent, that they were gonna have to get out of there. And what would be afterwards, what kind of a, a, a state would there be was subject to question. And it was at the time, if we put ourselves back in the, in, in the, um, in the years 1946, 1947, it's quite scary. You really didn't know what was going to be. And the Holocaust was right there, right, right, right behind you. Uh, still a shadow over our existence, and the future was anything but clear. What you did know is that you were surrounded by 22 hostile Arab nations, all very clearly, uh, all very clearly uh, interested in the um, destruction of the Jewish presence of the Yishuv, of the Zionist movement in Palestine, and certain that they would be able to create some kind of an Arab niche in, in this land. When the British when it became clear that they were going to withdraw, they turned to the United Nations. And they turned to the United Nations and asked them to come up with some kind of long-term workable solution. And the solution, which is famously called the Partition Plan, was then debated what it would, what it would entail. You know that till today, they're still not quite sure what the, poly, what the Partition Plan would have entailed. The most ambiguous, almost comically ambiguous, a um, piece of that was, if you look at the map, and if you'd like, I can get you a map. Right, the Arabs have like a ridiculous amount of land. They, well, actually no, the Arabs were, were resent, resented, the Arabs never accepted it. The Arab portions were technically, geographically smaller than the Jewish portions of British Mandate Palestine, whatever the British maintained control, which was not, not so different than what we see as the map of the state of Israel today, what the British had, if you actually divided the land, the Jews got more. But it's just what we had was not so usable. It was mostly non-arable land, meaning you couldn't really harvest the land of the desert in the, in the Negev, and it was not continuous. So the portions, it was, all, it, was, it was several patches of land, but the Arab land, all one patch uh, had continuity with the other patch. They all were interconnected. In order to get from the, in the three major chunks of land that were given to the Jews, they had to cross through Arab lands to get access from one, one place to the, to the next. But this is the plan that eventually was developed in the United Nations. And, um, it's much better than what the Arabs have today. Like, even if you want to go back to 1967, they would have had much more than anything. Absolutely true. Abba Iban was a, was a witty, originally South African, Israeli statesman, uh, left-wing statesman in the Labor Party, who, um, and we'll, we'll talk about all of this, we're a little ahead of ourselves, but he, his, quote, his, his quotable line was, um, the Palestinian people have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. 
And that at any state, any juncture along the way, had they simply said, yes, we'll accept that, they would have been far better off than whatever later subsequent uh, terms they found themselves in. Including today. They never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, but that, we'll, we'll talk about the Arab mentality. Let me, let me just focus on the partition plan and, and the, the event which was celebrated by the Jews. There's a street on the other side of Jerusalem called Chavtet in November, the 29th of It's a fun name. Chavtet, which is clearly a Hebrew number, Benovember, which is clearly not a Hebrew month. Chavtet uh, Benovember, 29th of November, which is when the Palestinian, when the partition plan was, was embraced. It's often celebrated as a Zionist success. Um, but I want to go back and try to understand what it was. Often the means used by the um, activists, by those who, uh, from the Zionist movement who, who are activists, were often ruthless in trying to achieve their means. The ends justify the means. And this is not the first time we'll, we'll have seen this. You remember the story that we told about the boat that was turned back to the Nazis and the defense, Shirtak's uh, defense was, well, it had to be, we, we felt that this was a small sacrifice to be made for the bigger, for the greater cause of the Zionist state. We need, we need a state, and that's if a few Jewish lives had to be sacrificed towards that end goal, well, so be it. Um, that was, a, we, we encounter similar kind of um, efforts on the part of, the, of those actives. It, it, it reminds me, this, their, the kind of approach is one, I don't know, I, I can't help make a connection between this. At all expenses, we're gonna, we're gonna do what we need to do to get to the end goal. Uh, what, what, what reminds me of that is the recent display of, um, whatever you wanna call his, his power ploys, um, of, of the soon to be, probable, probable to be a new prime minister, is the same prime minister as Bibi Netanyahu, his efforts in going to Congress and his, his political campaigning, his preening, and so on, that, that um, it often not really, sort of, sort of not really concerned with what it looks like and how people will see him. Um, but the fact that the Zionists would get themselves a bad reputation in the world was not just because of anti-Semitism. They, they did a number of things. I'll, I'll give you a few illustrations here. They did a number of things to make themselves um, odious in the, in the, in, to the world. Um, okay, February, a little, little timeline here. February of 1947, the British announced that they're going to terminate the mandate. It's official. Um, in April, they turned to the United Nations. What are, what, what's going to be? What's the recommendation? And it takes all those months throughout the summer, all the way to November 29th, until they finally, the UN finally approves a partition plan of Palestine. They're going to create an independent Arab state, a Jewish state, and this is the part that I alluded to earlier, the part that's, that was not at all developed and worked out or imagined, and even till today we have no idea what it means. Jerusalem and its environs, everything around Jerusalem was going to be converted to a international city, an international city which has no precedent. There is no such thing as an international city. So how that such a thing would work remains anybody's guess. In the world till today, even if you're talking about the post-enlightenment modern world, uh, post uh, Berlin Wall world, where it seems that you you know people, it's a different, it's a new age. But still, countries remain sovereign when they have strong armies. And if a, as, as happens, not irregular, I mean, this last year we've seen coups around the world from the Ukraine to, uh, <coughs> to Central African Republic and all kinds of other small countries that you never hear about. But, you know, these things are very common. And usually what it means is the army came and they kicked the president out of his palace and they install their new president, who's usually the general or some other, some other, some other uh, military figure. That's usually what happens in the world. And that's usually what you need. And the people who are in power are in power because they got the strongest army in that place. So what would it mean to have an international city? Who's going to have the police force? Who's going to run? Who's going to make the determinations? Who's going to throw whom into jail? None of that had been, had been uh, worked out. But anyway, that was the... Um, idealistic maybe or the well-intending purposes of the UN they wanted to somehow create some kind of lasting compromise in this part of the world what is going on in this part of the world at that at that time well we find that in Palestine alone I'm not talking about the neighboring countries in the north you've got Lebanon you have to the northeast you have Syria to the east Jordan and to the south uh, to the southwest you've got um, Egypt 
course, not far, you have Iraq and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, uh, and, and, and again, this, this whole part of the world, which is predominantly Muslim, um, in the local Palestine, British Mandate Palestine, we would, going back to 1947, end of 1947, find 1 1.2 million Arabs locally, most of whom had not been there for more than a couple generations, which is, as the same statement can be made about the Jews, but when the Palestinians make um, claims about their long-term establishment in Palestine, those are fictitious, much like the Jews have not long-term been living in Palestine, with a few exceptions. We know that there were certain families that had been here, the Doridoros, but most, most were newbies, new arrivals. Um, the 1.2 million Arabs would be compared with some 650,000 Jews locally, meaning a meaning, uh, little bit over half uh, the number of, of Arabs. There were, there were half, half uh, the, the Jews were half the number of the local Arabs, a little over half. 60%. So, uh, not even, not even 60%. Most of the Jews were indeed European-born. There were Sephardi Jews, but most of them were from Europe. Um, the passage of the partition plan, according to the arbitrary rules of the UN, um, required two-thirds of the member states. Who gets to be a member state is another question. You realize that it's rigged against the Jews since you have so many Muslim states and so many states that are just generally hostile to anything Jewish. Um, there are 56 member states at the time. It was a very close call. Now, um, how many are there? Say it again. How many are there today? It's a good question. More? All of it is all Ashkafa Pratis, we realize. No, I mean, like, the fact that they have their rules, it's two thirds, no, no, the 56 I mean, like, states. They might as well not even stay the rule. They might as well have just said, okay, the Palestinians get it. Instead they might have, except that's not what wound up happening. I know, but instead of being in a fair way that the Okay, this was the way, this is the way all decisions of this sort were made. I don't know how many precedents there were. Um, the story is often told with a lot of um, bravado and, uh, and, and, and self-satisfaction by, I mean, I know tour guides in Israel who love the, the, the stories. They took this guy out to the horse races and got him drunk, and they brought him back, and he voted for Israel. They voted for the partition plan. I mean, these kinds of uh, stories that do make for entertaining um, tales, but the, they were unscrupulous. In other words, the Zionists were in favor of the, pal of the partition plan. But the Zionists got drunk? Right. That was, that was the story. I don't know how true all of the stories are, but I'm going to share a few of the stories with you. The, I mean, you know, with, with, with the retelling of these stories, they tend to take on, they take a literary license, they take on a certain distortion. Right, right. So you're seeing, you're seeing all these, all these kinds of behind-the-scenes mechanisms uh, that that, the, that that were going on by the activists, who were often unscrupulous, and they again made themselves. Let's use let's use understatement here. You know, obnoxious in the eyes of many in the world, no less than the president of the United States, time Harry Truman. He said as follows. I do not think that I have ever, and he was somebody who's very sympathetic to Jews. He had a very an old story with Truman. He had an old friend who was Jewish, an advisor. He was generally amenable as far as non-Jewish rulers in our history are concerned. Truman, Truman was um, among the better friends that Jewish people has known. And yet he himself said about, in, in, re, in reflecting on what went on before the vote, before the partition plan was voted, he said, I do not think I ever had as much pressure and propaganda aimed at the White House as I had in this instance. The persistence of a few of the extreme Zionist leaders, actuated by political motives and engaging in political threats, Truman said, disturbed and annoyed me. Uh, the Indian Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of the country of India, said the Zionists had tried to bribe India with millions. Um, the President, the Prime Minister said his sister, who is the UN representative, had received daily warnings that her life was in danger unless she voted correctly. No, don't, don't, don't right now, because you take, take us off topic. I mean, I'm sure it's a good story. Tell me another time. But it's the. Uh, it, but clearly, we see what goes on in general in democratic situations where people are unscrupulous. They'll 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 reduce themselves to these to these kinds of ploys. But you have to realize, 
there, I mean, they, they say it's Machiavelli and the ends justify the means and, you know, anything for the Jewish state and we're going to get there. But it's not quite true in real politics. What happens in the world, the world remembers not just the end result of the vote, but they become turned off to the whole enterprise. Um, they, uh, they actually promised a $5 million loan and that, uh, to, to, to Haiti. Um, and that was that probably got their vote. The Philippines representative, representative was in opposition to the Christian plan, and um, the next day he was replaced. Somehow they, you know, I don't know how it worked exactly who bribed whom, but he, there was somebody else who was filled in, and indeed the Philippines voted in favor. Uh, yeah, I'm here now. In the end, in the end, the vote was 33 to 13. So if you do the math, it had to be two thirds. 33 to 13, there were 10 abstentions and one, one person, one member was absent. Who was absent? Go look it up. I'm sure it's all fine. You could all, you could all uh, determine who was who. The Jews, of course, when the vote came in, there was famous, famous uh, film footage where you see the Jews listening rapt with attention, listening to their radios and old ladies crying and uh, very, very emotional as, as the votes came in and they, they said, you know, uh, going down, racking down, Argentina, uh, right, Argentina, I think, uh, abstain, abstain. I don't know. I don't have all this memorized. In any case, um, most of the reaction, a part of the uh, certainly of the of the Zionist yeshuv, was jubilation, dancing in the hara in the streets. They, of course, accepted the plan immediately. Yes, we'll put this into practice. They'll take anything, whatever scraps are thrown at them. Even though the plan geopolitically was a disaster, uh, they got none of the traditional lands. And in terms of defending such a such a country, you should look at the partition plan and see how precarious it is for the Jews. But they'll take what they can get. But that was irrelevant. The fact that the Jews embraced it meant very little because the Arabs unanimously, and it's not so common, the, the Arabs are unanimous about anything. They have their own problems of unity, uh, lack thereof. But the Arabs unanimously rejected it. And um, they instead demanded, they said, this is irrelevant. We want an independent Arab Palestine. They claimed the world would acknowledge this, and they, within their Arab country of Palestine, would respect the rights of a Jewish minority. It was, and it was officially, they couldn't say they're going to throw every Jew into the Mediterranean Sea, which is what off the record, many of them were really were, 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 were indeed saying, not just implying, they did say this off the record, but officially they allowed a Jewish minority within their, within their Arab state, but nothing less than that. Um, Arab leaders spoke openly about, as we said, driving the Jews into the sea. Um, they, rid, they were going to rid Palestine of the Zionist plague. Now, the British, as we mentioned, they were beset with their own problems and national interests. Um, they said, we'll accept the plan. And they did so with a cruel gleam in their eye, recognizing that whatever was going to follow would be a bloodbath, that this was not going to be accepted smoothly, and that it would, it would probably lead to the destruction of the Jewish yeshuv in Palestine. And that was simply not something the British needed to worry about. In their dry, inimitable British fashion, they would say, well, that's just not our concern. Uh, we've had it with the Jews. You remember we've had, we, we did a whole, several sections on the uh, torrid relationship between the Jews and the British during the Mandate period, it was not a happy relationship. And um, they said that we will accept the plan, we will not be responsible for it, we will not enforce it. Whatever will be, will be, and we're moving out, which is effectively leading to a lawless situation. And that's what the, um, the, the Arabs who were here locally and the Jews who were here locally were anticipating. When the British pulled out, Nobody was here to, uh, to keep any sense of law and order. Nobody was here to monitor, and it was going to be an all-out war. And people braced themselves for the worst. And that was what many, many expected. The, um, the date was set. They were going to withdraw, indeed, on May 14, 1948. Hey, ER, which would later be chosen as the day that Israel would declare independence on the exact day that the British would finally withdraw, but you know the withdrawal was not all in one fell swoop. They went, often unannounced and secretively, 
they had to do it in stages because it was complicated. You don't just leave a country. I don't know if you've tracked this in your own lifetimes when, when the Americans had to withdraw from Iraq, for example. So it's not, you don't just, you don't just get an airplane and fly out the next day. You have to leave, what's, what's that? Oh, well, I was just saying we're going back. So. Yeah, it's going back anyway, right. But, but I mean, all of, these, all of these maneuvers are incredibly complicated and you pull out, you know, if you're the local police and you're pulling out, well, then people are off to fire at you as you leave. For example, I don't know, for example, you guys were, were, were but, but kinder when it happened, but when the Israelis withdrew from Lebanon, um, this was 15 years ago, they withdrew from Lebanon, they did so under fire. And they, it was an absolute embarrassment that they were they had to literally run with their tail beneath their legs and are, 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 running away as, 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 the, as the Hezbollah uh, attacked them, yeah. But, but in Vietnam, though, I thought we left pretty smoothly. We left, like, that was, okay, but that was, you, you cited, and that's the exception to the rule. This is not smooth, and the British often did it in the middle of the night. They would just, they would pull out, and the, I'm a little ahead of myself here, but since I'm mentioning this, and this comes up a lot in the stories you hear around, around uh, the country as, as you guide around the country, is they would leave in the middle of the night and whoever got inside information from the British, you bribe the local officers, when are they leaving? The, sometimes, sometimes it was the Jews, sometimes the Arabs were the smarter, they would suddenly appear out of nowhere as the, as the British were simply quietly closing up shop, the next power would be there to replace them. And by the next morning, they simply were a fact on the ground and they were there. And often it was a bloodless battle where they simply took the the, uh, the sites from the British. Um, usually, the they're, they're uh, along the roads. Roads are very important in any in any war situation. Whoever controls the war controls the country. So along the roads in the country, if you ever noticed, they um, the British built a number of pillbox kinds of struc uh, shaped structures, uh, and then and then fortresses called Tigert, named, named for the designer Charles Tigert fortresses. There's one right outside of Telstone, uh, but you have them all over the country. When you took the fortress, you actually controlled the high post usually on the road, and then you manned the road, and whoever, and that was then your jurisdiction. So this is the stuff of great intrigue and war story, which I'm going to try to avoid. You, can, um, you, you know that Israelis are often, especially in the tour guide industry, but not just, um, often obsessed with the details of these wars, and they talk about them uh, with endless detail. Um, and sometimes, sometimes out of certain to the point that it's unnecessary to hear all these details. I'm going to try to give you what I think is um, critical, but there's a lot of there's a lot more you can hear about all of this if, if it's of interest to you. The um, <clears throat> the Arabs then were gearing up for a war. That was where we found ourselves. The Bristarov has some. As always, the Brister Rav, who we'll be talking about a certain amount, is one of the Gedolei He is one of the sons of Chaim Brisker, who we met and we talked about his immense influence, the Brisker Derech influence today on all yeshivas around the world. Um, and the Brister Rav was, we'll, we'll, we'll meet as well, was uh, miraculously survived um, the Shoah, made it to Eretz Israel, made it to Palestine, and followed all of these events. And he wondered, he said, how do you understand, how do you make sense of the fact that the nations allowed for a partition and on some level the Balfour Declaration and the acknowledgement that there could be a Jewish state even if it's just theoretical and people expected a bloodbath, why would they do this? How do you make sense of this from the, from the historical paradigm of the Ace of Sonus Yaakov, that the, the non-Jews hate the Jews, then why would this make any sense that they would favor a partition plan? So the Briskorov posits as follows. He says, the world was convinced the Jews had no chance. The Arabs were far greater in number, in arms. They had actually developed armies. The Jews were underground guerrilla warriors at best. Um, he said he felt that the world cynically may have considered this the ultimate convenient solution to the Jewish problem. Was they could sit by, it was not their business. They, they, they did what they did. They, after all, favored a Jewish state. They voted in favor of partition. <laughs> And therefore, they could, they could with good, in good conscience, say they took care of the Jews as best they could. The fact that the Arabs wiped out the Jews, that's not their business. That was just unfortunate planning on the part of the Zionist Yeshuv. Um, he said, at that point, the only thing in the world that was standing by Klal Yisrael was Chazdei Hashem. Uh, even if we're undeserving, we see through history also, Kaddish Baruch Hu, V'hisha Amdullah, V'seinu V'lanu, he takes care of us, and I think from that perspective, that's how the Briskorov understands these events of, the, of these times. 
we were unworthy and undeserving, and the Kaddish Baruch Hu, um, when nobody else would be there for us, was there for us in the, in the events that follow, what's called Milchemes Tashach, the War of Independence, which breaks out the day after the partition plan. Um, one more comment on the Arabs. The Arabs felt, from their perspective, and I'm generalizing, but I think this is a fair generalization till today, the Arabs felt that they were victims of a grave injustice. Have you ever considered their perspective on, on, on the big events going on in, in this part of the world? They said, listen, we're the majority here. That's true. They, were the, they had the demographic majority without any competition, and yet they said we received a smaller portion of land, right? even though the large tracts of land given to the Jews were not so usable. Um, he said, the Jews are not our problem. We've never been terrible to the Jews, which compared to the Christians was a fair statement. Uh, we've seen that through history as well. The West, the people of Europe, they're the ones responsible for the Jewish problem. That's their headache. They're the ones who created the refugees in the, in the uh, wake of uh, the Holocaust. Why then should the Arabs be the people who have to shoulder the burden of the Jewish people? It's not our problem. At this point, Palestinian nationalism is on the rise. All Arab nationalism is on the, on the rise. I refer you to the books of Bernard Lewis, a professor from Princeton, who writes, writes in depth about the general, he, his, his subject is not exactly this, he's, a, he's addressing, he talks about a lot of different things, he certainly addresses revisionism, but I, I'm, I'm referring to what he, he writes about the rise of fundamentalist radical Islam in the, in the last couple of decades throughout the world. He also points to the general resentment that the Arab world felt towards the West, and that explains 9/11 and many of many of the uh, many of the shocking developments of of uh, that we see unfolding even in our time. Something we'll, we'll address a little bit more. So he he, he does he does a. Uh, do you have any lights? All the lights are out, Yeshiva. No, no. Okay. Well, we, it's more it's more cozy this way. We like it. Thank you. Let me just finish the thought, and then you're on the. Um, so he addressed this too. There's a general sense of resentment in the world. You remember the last thousand years, it's more or less a struggle between the supremacy of the Christians versus the Muslims. And now the Muslims are on the rise. And they want, they're, they're angry and resentful. And they, and, and they see the, um, the idea of a Jewish state, Jews being the problem of the West and being a, a really the secular Zionists with their culture, as it were, uh, as being an embodiment of the worst of the West. Um, they, they said this is not, not for us. And so the, the vehemence, the, um, the absolute uncompromising position on their part was all part of this, was all part of the, the opposition. If you were to ask a local Arab, all the way back, let's say 100 years ago, in 1915, middle of World War I, 1910, let's say before the war, what is your nation? He would have said, well, I'm part of the broad Ottoman Empire or the state of Syrian Jewry, he wouldn't know what you're talking about, you're Palestinian. Palestinian is a modern term. There, were, there wasn't a Palestinian consciousness before World War I, arbitrarily carved up this part of the land, part of the world, and created randomly a place called Jordan, Transjordan. They carved up and created Syria and Lebanon, French and, and British um, uh, extensions of their empire. Uh, and, and the fact that you have a divided Arab world now, with now a new representation in the land of Palestine, with the new people that are going to start calling themselves Palestinian. These are new, new developments. Um, the League of Nations in 1923 split up the smaller states that we find today. Um, Golda Meir famously said, there is no Palestinian people. And she's right and she's wrong. There was no Palestinian people historically. If anything, Palestinian people are an extension of the people who live in Transjordan. Ethnically, there's no real di distinction between them, but facts on the ground, her statement is wrong because wh whether you like it or not, the complicated last century has created a Palestinian people. At least that's the way they see it, and we're not going to convince them otherwise in any in any immediate way. Um, they would find a, there's a ripe national base, there's strong feeling of all Arabs all around this part of the world, uh, locally in Palestine and then throughout the Middle East who are now ready to go to war. And that's, that's what we find when we'll talk about the, the war that breaks out. Baraki had a thought or a question. Yeah, just, just on Jordan, I didn't, uh, I, I'm glad I was going to talk about that. But that, that was owned by the, by the British, right? And they gave it. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, wouldn't that be in the Arab state, though? I don't understand that. Yeah, Jordan was created by the League of Nations in 1923. Right. But so then they also wanted a Arab state in Palestine? Well, that was the question. That was what was unresolved because for the British, the British had kept Palestine as a separate entity. The British had different designs here. They had messianic ideas that they were going to be the Christian power to be here when Yashka would return. So they had a very different vision. It didn't quite work out as they hoped. But, but that was, that was their, their, their scheme. Now, cut, chase, it's now 30 years later. The, the mandate has gone abysmally beyond anybody's worst expectations. And now you're left with a bunch of Jews who have this notion of Zionism. We're going to create their own state. And a bunch of Arabs who are under no circumstances going to allow that. And then Jordan didn't allow them to come back, the Palestinians? Oh, well, the Jordanians have their own self-interest now. They're not interested. You're, you're ahead of me now. You're talking, about, you're talking about already, you're already a post-war of independence refugee, which we're going to get to the refugee problems. But, um, but for so, sure, so, so, so now the there's, not, there's not a lot of loyalty between the Arabs. We, see, we find in most of modern history of, of pan-Arab pan-nationalism, pan-Arab nationalism, that you, fi you find um, you find there's more backstabbing and infighting than among the Jews. They, uh, they very very seldom get along. They have their own interests. They're not necessarily a logical nation. Prior to the modern era, I described this before. The Arabs were a bunch of uh, mostly tribes, distinct tribes, often at war with one another. That they would somehow be seen as countries, as having national interests. That's very difficult. You see, let's say, the implosion of, this, of the country of Syria that's been taking place for the last several years and is, is, is reaching a crescendo right now. So the Syrians, you see that manifested. That they're not unified. They, 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 they're all out for blood, one another's blood. And uh, with very different visions how that's going to look. So the idea that the, the people in Jordan will be sympathetic to their cousins over in Palestine, not, not, not something that they're open to. Give you going to say something? Um, it's, we're going to get to it next Okay. Day, so. um, November 29th, there is, they vote for the partition. The Jews dance the har in the streets. The Arabs are bitter. Um, the next day, a bus, a Jewish bus, leaves Netanya, set for Jerusalem. When they come up through the Jerusalem corridor, um, not far from where I live in Telstone, a little bit further down the, down the valley, um, you have to picture the, war, the, the road that they're quickly expanding. As you see, every if you've been on that road in the course of this year, you see it's making progress. They finally just opened up a new entrance that makes coming to Jerusalem more convenient uh, for us. We can get right on the right on the main highway from Telstone now, as we never could before. Um, in any case, in any case, that area, the Jerusalem quarter, was a was a small. Um, one lane in each direction, uh, road that was the main artery of traffic between the main coastline uh, of Palestine and Jerusalem. And it's there that an Arab attacks a Jewish civilian bus en route to Jerusalem. One Arab attacks the whole bus? Mm -hmm. And leaves six terrorists, terrorist attack. And he leaves, uh, it may have been two Arabs. It may have been two, I don't remember the exact number. It was a small attack. And they were on the bus, they didn't like shoot Right, correct. And six Jews are murdered. And with that, on November 30th, that's considered the outbreak of the War of Independence. Uh, the religious way of look, calling it sometimes is Mohammed Tashach, the War of, um, of 1948 or of 5708, if you're, if you're plugged into the Jewish calendar. Um, the first half of the war, if you want to think of this war in, in various stages, the war then is more or less divided between November 30th and, let's say, May 14th. The first half of the war then is between Jews and mostly local Arabs. The big Arab nations don't weigh in until the British withdraw officially. That'll be the next phase of the war, and we'll get we'll get there soon enough. Hello, welcome oh, back. Hey. Hey. Welcome back. Hi. 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 Hi
and the British are still uh, are still enforcing all of their laws, including the white paper laws. They don't allow Jewish immigration. They don't allow refugee boats still to come to the to the uh, to, to to dock at any of the uh, harbors along the Mediterranean coast. Um, they do not, by law, they do not allow the Jews to carry munitions. They're not allowed to make um, ammunition. They're not allowed to uh, carry guns. All of this the Jews had to do in an underground, clandestine fashion. Um, there are, in Yerushalayim, 100,000 Jews surrounded, as is not the case today, but the 100,000 Jews are surrounded by Arabs, hostile Arabs, in every single direction. And I really should have a map, but you have to picture. Yerushalayim, Erev Kodesh, is right here. Large population of Jews, relative, if, if you've got only about six, 600,000 Jews, 650,000 Jews all over uh, Palestine, so Jerusalem is 100,000, that's a lot, but there's nobody nearby. Very few Jewish Yishuvim are around, there are a few. There's Gush Etzion in the south, there are four kibbutzim of the Gush Etzion in the south, there are a couple more, there's Neve Yaakov, which is this they're going to suffer a terrible fate. Uh, there are a couple along the road. Neve Alan is a small, a newly created place. Uh, Kiryat Anavim is as, as, as a small issue. What's, all what's, along, that? what's, that? what's that? Moza is tiny, almost uh, non-existent. Moza is really nothing. Um, there's Malik Hamisha, which is also very small, not really along the main road. And there's not much going on for the Jews. And they're sort of sitting ducks, surrounded by very strong, very, very angry Arabs in every direction. Um, and then you have along the coast, you have, you know, all around you have Jewish yishuvim, but they're, they're, the situation looked very fraught. It, it, was not a, it, was not a, it was not one that people felt very positive about, because what was, what's going to be? Um, well, we recognize in hindsight, we had a good baruch on our side, and you had also the fact that Jews were surviving for their basic survival. They were, they were fighting for their survival. Um, the Arabs were angry, but they were not fighting a war to the death. They were not fighting for their for, for their lives, um, so it's, it's it's not quite the even though there's there's a lack of parity on all kinds of levels. The numbers are off. I'll give you I'll give you the, the, some of the statistics soon. Um, but what's also not quite fair and equal on both sides is the basic premise of the war: the Jews are fighting to live, uh, and they recognized that, especially in the post-Holocaust world, the Holocaust having ended three years earlier. Um, this was not just about the local Jews surviving, but the sense was if the Jews were not making it in Palestine, they wouldn't make it anywhere. Ilan, you had something? Well, I just going to say I went to Castel uh, two days ago. I'm going to tell the story. Yeah. I'm going to tell the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the places I, I, I like to guide, uh, depending on how you hear the story, there are various versions. I'll do my best to give you uh, an accurate display. The... Um, they all, and this is really the lay. I mean, you're, you're right now. I mean, you, you anticipate this because I'm, I'm leading up to the story of the Castell. So, um, as the fighting breaks out, there's an increasing recognition that with the partition plan and the various um, strategies around the map of where the Jews are going to be, and the increasing recognition that the, the partition plan is going to be irrelevant, that the Jews are going to have to just do this, uh, as it were, but on their own. Um, the centrality of Jerusalem will become increasingly relevant. And both sides will, will come to recognize that if you have Jerusalem, you probably have the war. Why is that? Because it's not just a war. This is an emotional, spiritual cataclysm of a war um, that each side perceives as some kind of um, long-term eschatological showdown. That this is a war of the end of days. And if that's true, we're fighting over not just any land, we didn't accept the Uganda plan, we didn't accept the options over in Siberia or, or, or in Argentina, if it's the war over the Holy Land, well, you know, it's no Holy Land, there's no Jewish state without the eternal capital of Kuala Israel, and that's Jerusalem. And that's true in the minds of the religious Jews, but it's interestingly true in the minds of the secular Yishuv, the Zionist, Zionist um, Yishuv. And the Arabs recognize that fact every bit as much as the Jews. They saw Jerusalem as the linchpin, as, 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 as the key. And they had a charismatic leader. His name is Abdul Qadil Husseini. You heard about him, Milan the other day on the Castel? Yeah, yeah. Abdul Qadil Husseini, who, um, who recognizes this. And he comes up with a strategy. Um, his idea was, when you, if, you, if you could take Jerusalem and secure Jerusalem, then um, 
the, the uh, psychological effect of that on the other side would be devastating to the point that they would ultimately lose it, they would give up. They would, they would throw in the towel. And so he realized that what you could do with this, the Arabs already had the natural advantage topographically, you simply cut off Jerusalem and strangle it. And that will be, that will be the, um, the strategy that he hits upon and he does it very logically. Here's a man who grew up in the hills around Jerusalem who knows the, the, the trees and the rocks and the pathways like the back of his hand. Right, like the, like the arteries in the back of his hands is something that's familiar to him, and that's true about the local Arabs as well. They know that the Jews have access to Jerusalem only by these rickety old dirt roads, not quite dirt roads, but not much better than dirt roads, one lane in each, in each direction, and they would, um, because in order to approach Jerusalem, you have to go up this uh, treacherous terrain, um, the strategy that they hit upon was the, the um, mountain area where I live in around Jerusalem, what they call the Court of Jerusalem, is dotted with small Arab villages all along the way. Places like Beit Machsir and Saris and uh, Castel are all, are all Arab villages. And they were trained by Abdul al Husseini to lead ambushes. When they saw the Jews started to come in convoys in small, old, old uh, um, driving at as much as 10, 20 miles per hour up these, uh, you know, these, these big trucks, these old, these old trucks, whatever the Jews could afford, which was not much, to bring precious supplies to the, Jerusalem, to the Jewish population of Jerusalem, food and water and, uh, and medical supplies and so on, they'd have to go in, in convoys. And they would go up the Jerusalem corridor, wind their way up the Jerusalem corridor. Well, the villagers would lay an ambush. They would block the road on one side and then quickly make an explosion on the other side so they were surrounded. And then, the, and then when, the, when the queue was given, the villagers would come down and attack the convoys. When you're driving up, you've seen this probably all your lives, you can see there are burned out relics, shells of some of the old trucks and cars uh, that were used to drive in these convoys. You ever notice that? Can you picture what I'm talking about? They move them around now that they're doing all the roadworks. Now they're they're not always so prominently displayed, but at most junctions you can usually you can see where these where these there's a, those are um, shells of the original trucks. Sometimes whole convoys were murdered on on mass. Uh, that was one of the strategies. There was not quite the same attack, but there was an attack of a convoy. Um, I, I did I do this tour with you guys this year? I don't remember. Maybe it was last year. Um, just up here, I, I'm pointing uh, about a five minute walk in that direction was the, um, also in the same time period on April 8th, I think it was, was of the spring of 1948, there was a convoy of Jews, mostly doctors, nurses, and patients, that was en route from the west of Jerusalem, which was mostly the Jewish Jerusalem, over to the hospital on Hebrew, um, the, the Hadassah Hospital by Mount Scopus, by the Hebrew University. A, a convoy was en route coming from the west Jerusalem made its way through Shijarach and was beset by such an Arab mob who came and for, for most of the hours of the day um, attacked this and were there any survivors? I don't know if there were any survivors. I think there were something like uh, 87, 80, 88 murdered victims, mostly doctors, nurses. Um, Wait, where exactly was it? Where exactly was it? If you cross the street and go over, I, I guess I haven't done this tour this year. There's a big monument. Haven't we haven't done that yet. We'll yeah. have to figure that out. Get around that. The um, in any case, there is a big plaque over there, and uh, um, it's exactly the point of the of the uh, of the attack. Um, that you can go across the street, and you simply go um, until you get to the road where the Shimon Tzadik tomb is, you make a right turn to go to Shimon Tzadik, but you don't do that. You continue going up straight, and just, I don't know, a few meters further, right above Shimon Tzadik's tomb, is the, is the site of the attack. So this was a favorite, uh, easy way of killing lots of Jews and, and terrorizing the people into not using warfare. the roads. Say it again? It's guerrilla warfare. That's what, that's, that's what the nature of the war was. And that's how they fought to strangle Jerusalem to make Jerusalem increasingly isolated and desperate so the Jews ultimately would cave, would cave in. You realize most of war, not just the war of independence, most wars in the world are not really tactical. It's not about who wins. Like in, let's say, a, in a ball game, it's all about who strategizes best. And at the end of the day, it's who rackets up the most points in most games, right? Wars are not really like that. Wars are all really psychological. 
they win because the other guy said we're not gonna we're not gonna get out of this thing. And sometimes it's irrational. Sometimes the weaker side winds up winning by simply terrorizing the other side and deceiving them, deluding them to the to the to the conclusion that oh yeah, we're not gonna win this thing. Yeah, no. Very much. Isn't that called the war of attrition? It's a war of attrition, but like most wars actually work like that. Most that's why most strategists work on what we call psychological warfare. How are we going to psych out the other side? That's very much what's underlying this. If you don't get Jerusalem, you're going to basically demoralize the other side. And that was recognized by both sides. And Abdul Qadil Husseini hit upon this very, very effective strategy where indeed the 100,000 Jews in Jerusalem were very slowly being strangled. If you want to see a more elaborate account of this, you can read the fairly well done, reasonable book called O Jerusalem by non-Jewish authors, where they try to give you an even-handed approach and they interview all positions, Jewish, Arab, British, and otherwise, um, in, in, of, of, that era, of this time in history leading up to the war, uh, the Declaration of Independence. They don't do the second half of the, uh, of, of the War of Independence, but it does, it does paint um, a very interesting portrait of what was going on here uh, and the desperation, increasing desperation of the Jewish um, settlements in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was more or less besieged. It was never really called that, but that's effectively what was going on. The um, <clears throat> Now, in general, until the spring, the, the strategy of the leadership, the leadership of the Jews is based in Tel Aviv, in the, in, on the coast. Um, Ben-Gurion and others were, were, uh, were more or less calling the shots, and their strategy, their approach was one, it's not the first time we've seen this, the strategy is one of what we call Havlaga, which is, remember Havlaga? It was the reason why the Irgun broke away and why the, why the more, more radical right-wing used Right, they were one of restraint. We don't want to sully our name. We want to ingratiate, ingratiate ourselves into, uh, into the world. We want to be the good boys of the world. We don't want the UN to think badly of us. We don't want the United States to think badly of us. So they would, would, um, held themselves. Uh, that, was their, that was their approach. They were concerned. They were concerned if they were going to be completely cut off from the world, well, you know, who would be there to come riding in if the Arabs do indeed make good on their promises to, to, to destroy all of the Jews? Well, who's going to come in? Who's going to be the cavalry? Who's going to come in to save us? So that, was, that explained their approach. The Arabs, of course, were unburdened by any such conscience, and they had no problem. They, they, their, their strategy was not have God. They attacked, and they attacked uh, viciously all around the country. Some of the famous attacks included the attack of, uh, against what's called the Lamed Hay, if you know the if you know the story, the um, the uh, kibbutzim in Gush Etzion were also very much under siege, very much isolated uh, by, by surrounded by by uh, hostile Arabs. And when thirty five talented young men set out in the middle of the night to go and uh, give them supplies and 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 also be there to fight for them and to, to help to help them, um, they were attacked in the middle of the night, and all thirty five men were, were murdered. Um, and a whole legendary um, story about that. Say it again? No, I was just like, uh, I was thinking about that because like, uh, either that or something else like that. It was very recent. No, that was, that was, that was in the um, January, January of 1948. Uh, 35 men were murdered, the Lamed, the Lamed Hay, as, the, as they're traditionally called. Something like that recently happened in like 2009, like the whole uh, Israeli group was like massacred completely. Okay. Um, by the end of March, there were actually several of these attacks. There was Lamed Hay, there was an attack on Neve Daniel, also in the Gush, there was an attack in the far north in Yechiam, and um, they left a, ter they were a terrible blow to the Jews, and again, it was all psychological warfare, but it, it, they, they, they reached a very low morale because they felt this was, this was just the beginning and what's going to be in the future. There were a total of 1,000 Jews killed, but in a small yeshuv of 650,000 Jews, that's a lot. Uh, that means you know somebody, or you know somebody whose, whose cousin was killed. You certainly, everybody's very connected. Um, and sometimes we make, it's the irrational that moves us to action. And they, these attacks left the morale so low that they changed. And they said effectively, enough and no more. And we're gonna stop being the good guys and we're gonna go on the offensive. And that's, I'm giving you generalizations, but I think these generalizations hold, we're going to um, turn things around and go, on, and, and go on the attack. And this will begin starting in early April. 
And specifically, we're going to go on the offensive on behalf of Jerusalem. They, like Abdel Husseini, recognize that we're not going to win this war if we don't have Yushalayim here in Kodesh. Um, and they plan what's called Mifza Nachshon, very strategically, logically named, of course, named for Nachshon ben Aminadav. Nachshon, who remember, jumped into the Yamsuf, into the Red Sea first, and everybody else followed him. That's the idea. We're going to jump in first. We're going to we're going to go into the the uh, scary waters of the Jerusalem corridor to clear the Jerusalem corridor, and we're going to make a safe place for the Jews of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be, in fact, Jewish, and the vision was it'll be the capital of the Jewish the Jewish state, it's interesting how traditional even the secular were, meaning their choice of names was often very much holding, um, calling back on religion. Still in 1948, even the secular were not that many generations removed from their heritage, from their roots. And so the idea of calling on these emotional, traditional kinds of uh, icons, these, these, these themes of, of history, it meant something. It, it, it pushed people's buttons in a good way. It got people motivated in a way that now, a half a century later, the majority of, this, of the assimilated Jews are so ignorant, are so removed. If you were to call it Operation Nachshon, it would be meaningless to them. It wouldn't have the same effect. But back in the day, it did. Um, interesting. This works. These kinds of things you can trace in a lot of, a lot of people's history, but I'm, I'm thinking of Israel's history. Um, a lot of things happen because people say, enough, no further. 2002, I don't know if you guys remember what happened, but Pesach 2002, the Park, the Park, Park Hotel, Hotel in Netanya. Yeah, so it was one of many terrorist attacks that had been plaguing Am Yisrael for the last few decades, but it was one of these that was so horrific. The guy gets in his car in, um, in uh, Tulkarm, goes, how long, how far does it take from Tulkarm to, uh, to Netanya? Half a cigarette. That's the way the Israelis like to express it. Half a cigarette, you know, light, light and pull card, you know, half a cigarette later in Netanya. And he simply, you know, went over the other way, blew himself up, and 22 casualties, including Holocaust survivors, and uh, that too reached the floor of the Knesset, and they said enough is enough. And they were moved, because of that, they were moved to say, what are we going to do? What was the direct... No, I'm no a different a different uh, legislation. The um, the movement towards having a fence to separate the Arabs from the Jews, the separation the officer, fence. The officer. Yes, but I'm talking but specifically and when they got they galvanized the nation to supporting this. Yeah, yeah. We can't. We're not going to win this war in any immediate sense, but at least we could make it extremely hard for a guy to jump into his car and you know in one place and get out and, and, and do these kinds of um, do these things uh, right right around the corner. So so. Uh, and, uh, but yes, you could say that this last summer, uh, cynically, the government did whatever they did with the, with the uh, fate of these three boys, and they drummed up support for their war as a way of, uh, uh, that, that's a strategy. They recognize they can use this cynically to, to, uh, to galvanize the nation. Now, um, when I guide the Castell, I see it as a story of Pirash Kakapratis. This is not, there's no way human beings could do this. It's just a cottage bar will help you every step of the way. Um, you'll, consider, you'll consider as follows. Um, initially, Castel is located. Anybody been, other than Elan, anybody else been to Castel? You were, you were there too. So Castel is the place. Can you picture the road? It's called Route 1 between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. There is, as you're leaving Yerushalayim, you go down into a valley, into Motza, and then you got exactly a lot of winding up and down. This is the highest point out of Yerushalayim before you start descending the Shvela into the lowlands. So the highest point is the castell. Today it's Mibaseret Sion. And you can see on the top of the castell, on the left, let's say you're leaving Yerushalayim, it's on the left of the road. You can look up at the top of the mountain. You can see a flag. It's, today it's a national site. Um, you usually have to pay, but sometimes they're not always there to collect your money. Okay, we, we, I, I, you had to pay. It was like yeah, right. It's, it's nominal. The, um, the, uh, at, at the top was an ancient castell because it was a castle. Was an old Roman, uh, old Roman fort that would, in later generations, be um, an Arab village uh, that they converted into the ancient Roman structures. Arab village, including the house of the Muhtar, the uh, the local the leading chieftain, um, and it sits literally over the road to Jerusalem. If you go to the very top there, as so you did, you can see you can see the entire road road laid out for you. If you think about the strategy and the the the, the, um, the attacks, the ambushes on the convoys down below, they're sitting pretty. And so the Arabs knew, and the Jews realized soon enough, that if you take 
these villages that dot this, the top of the Jerusalem corridor, like, like, like those that I mentioned, Beit Mahsir and Saris and Castel, you basically win supremacy in that corridor and you get Jerusalem. So the, the, I'm making a long story short. You can learn the longer story. It's fantastic, but I don't have so much time left, and I want to finish talking about the Castel, at least for today. The, um, they take the Castel. Uh, they used the, the, there was one specialized fighting force in the Haganah, the mainstream largest Jewish fighting force that was still guerrilla and illegal, but it was the most mainstream. The, the most trained of the fighters were called the Palmach, Palmachnikim. They were needed for the ambitious um, uh, campaigns, including taking the Castel, part of Operation Nachshon. And then, of course, once they took the place, they moved on to the next place because there were so few Palmach fighters, they needed them for everything important. So what happened? The Pamach took the castel, they conquered it, the Arabs fled. Um, many of the Arabs were fleeing in this period from the whole Jerusalem area, and they, um, they didn't stay. Instead of the Pamach, they, came, they sent them what were called Cheshim, Chayal Sadeh, field soldiers. Who are field soldiers? I don't know, you, me, the guy who runs the grocery store down the street, mom and dad, you know, it's like a bunch of guys. You know, everybody fought. You know, you go, you go, there's, there's the official War of Independence Cemetery just down the way from the Castel uh, in the Kiryat Anavim Cemetery. And you look at the tombstones there, you can look at the same thing in, in Mount Herzl, and you see, oh yeah, this one was 15 years old, oh, there's a 16 year old. Yeah, people were fighting, you know, it was, a, it was a war for survival, so people took up arms and fought. And so the Cheshim took over the Castel. Yeah, it was, it was, it was literally a, 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 a war of the nation. Um, the Abdul Qadil Husseini was outraged. He saw the demise of his plans, his dream to take the Jerusalem corridor and thereby Jerusalem, and he led the battle cry. And he was a charismatic figure. He was somebody who, who was beloved in the Arab world. And he cried. He said, he said um, we're going to retake the castell. And he said this far and wide, and this time he enlisted support from thousands, tens of thousands of Arabs from far, far away from Iraq and Jordan uh, who came in, he heeding the call, he heeding you know, the, the symbolic, we're going to retake the castell. And indeed, um, they assembled. They assembled, this is all near the beginning of April, and, and, on, um, and on April 9th, in the middle of the night, the Arabs now are assembled, and it's interesting. They actually were there on April 8th, and they had assembled by the foot of the Castel, which is where the highway is today, but the decision was made not to charge up just yet. That evening, they would wait till the next morning. After all, the Arabs had so much uh, supremacy over the Jews. They were, the Jews were untrained soldiers, a few of them sitting up there, and you had thousands of Jews by the, by the uh, foot of the mountain. Um, there was no doubt in their mind that they would be able to easily retake the castell. Why bother going tonight when we go to tomorrow morning? What does that sound similar to? Yeah, what does that sound similar to? Thank you, Hebe. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. very good. Sancheirut in Chizkiyahu, right? Who said, yeah, we'll do it tomorrow morning. Uh, but sir, we should, no, no, tomorrow's fine. And what happens? That night, Gabriel sends his angel down and he smites with Gemara. Actually, says 185,000 troops, but they were the leaders of the troops. They're actually somewhere in the billions uh, of soldiers, and almost all of them are smitten, except for well, some say nine, some say ten, some say fourteen, and some say five. In what's that? Nevuzarada, or among the survivors? No, most of them died in Sanhedrin. The story is a little different, but not so much in terms of Ashkafa Prati. It's a little bit different in the modern era in the Castel. They are now, they're, they're surrounding the Castel, um, and they, they decide we're going to go up the next day. Now, there are two field soldiers who are standing guard, and they go, they're not very well trained. They go down a little bit too far down the mountain. Um, this is after a four, day, four or five day siege. They're about to collapse. They have no food and water left. They're very weak. They're trembling. They don't know what they're doing. They got all these Arabs down there. They're not even sure what they're guarding. Uh, and, and, and suddenly they see, approaching from the east, a figure. And they're terrified. And they say in Hebrew, who goes there? And the figure uh, calls out and says, hello, boys. It's just us. And then he says, and then, and then he says hands up. And they said they're not going to put their hands up. So instead of putting their hands up, they fire. And then they flee for their lives. And they run back. But it's interesting, as they're running away from their, for their lives, um, there's no sound in the background. Nobody's coming to pursue them. All they know is that they fired. And maybe they fired well. Um, at 9 in the morning, 
Um, Uzi Narcus, one of the one of the iconic uh, fighters there, finds a corpse. Wait, didn't he shoot? He's the one that shot himself, right? Uzi Narcus is a whole story. I'm not going there right now. He uh, he finds a corpse, and then he finds some of the papers on that corpse, and he puts them in his pocket and he keeps it for later on. Um, at 10 a.m., the Arabs, in complete chaos, you're not talking about a trained army, they're just going up the mountain, helter-skelter, um, to go and take the castell. And it's terrible, it's terrible. There's a massacre, there are many Jews who die, some who roll down the mountain, some barely get away, they go down into the base, the, the Palmach base is down in Kiryat Anavim, and they run down the mountain to, to, to flee, and the Arabs retake the castell. And there's immediate triumphal cries of victory. The castell's back in our hands. And they're looking around where can, um, where can they celebrate and where is their great leader, Abdul Qadil Husseini himself, who led the battle cry. The, um, in the end, there are 17 Jewish corpses, uh, uh, bodies around. Um, and the Arabs now have now retaken the castell. That night... The, uh, there is a sense of anarchy and chaos. Nobody's, nobody's clear exactly what's going on, but just down the mountain in Kiryat Anavim, the Jews receive an order that they are to retake the castell. And the order comes from Tel Aviv, from the base, the Zionist base. And they think, well, what are you talking about? We can't retake the castell. There are thousands of Arabs up there. We're just a few, few dozen men. We can't, we can't overtake them. And then they get the order again very clearly, no, no, you're going to retake the castell. And they follow the order, and they go back up the mountain the castell, and there are a few gunshots, but nothing else. It's relatively quiet, and in the middle of the night they go and they retake the mountain. And the story that emerges as the dust starts to settle is that um, what had happened, the big chaos, the big battle cry that had, that had arisen was not just a cry of victory. You see, the Muslims had discovered, the Arabs had discovered that, um, in their telling of the story, that they're in the middle of the victory, charging up the mountain, somehow, somehow the brave, courageous Abdul Qadr al-Husseini himself had fallen in battle and was killed by the side of the mountain. And the great heroic hero was, was, was killed. The Arabs said, now we're going to lead him to his, uh, to his, um, to his funeral and to his burial site. Anybody know where he's buried? That way. That way, Amharabayas. He's one of the few important Arab dignitaries. It's actually, you see buried right there in our holy, at the holy site of the Temple Mount. Uh, his, his grave is there till today. And they say that this has to be a funeral of the ages where everybody has to be there to pay respects, to pay tribute to the great battle hero, Abdul Qadr al-Husseini. The, um, of the details that they got wrong was the detail they called him the battle hero. In fact, they discovered, we discovered later that he was not killed heroically in battle, but rather was that figure that the two Cheshim, the two field soldiers, had inadvertently killed that night when they ran and when they fired and then ran for their lives. They had actually killed Abdul Qadr Husseini, who actually had gone out in the middle of the night to relieve himself by a bush. And it was his body that Uzi Narcus had stumbled on. And when he collected his immunization card, he saw Abdul Qadr Hussein said he saw, he saw actually his identification papers. And he saw that he died even before the battle commenced. The Pamach comes back. They retake the castell. They send reinforcements. And the castell has been in Jewish hands ever since until today. Um, so now, if I don't know what, how you read history exactly, but if you don't hear any bit of Hashkocha Pratis in these, in these uh, tales, in these events, and it's here, it's in the Castell, and it's in every stretch of the way, there's no reason or way or, or shape or form that the, the Jewish people should have somehow endured and survived. Melchemes Tashach, but somehow we did survive. It was Chazdeh Hashem. Um, we'll continue talking about the War of Independence tomorrow. Is it?